Good morning. Trey's teaching on relation slips and how to avoid them. So I'm going to read a bit from the second chapter of Genesis and how it all started. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all of the beasts of the field and all of the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, Now, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Good morning. Hey guys, why don't you grab your Bibles now and turn with me to the book of Genesis. And so pretty easy to find, very first book in your Bible, and so uh, easy to find. If you have your own Bible, that's excellent. If you didn't bring your own Bible, there should be pew Bibles in the pew back in front of you. Uh, feel free to turn with me now to Genesis chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. And uh, if you don't have access to either of those, uh, the text or most of them should be up on the screen. Uh, so as you're flipping, I want to give us a brief overview as to where we have been and uh, where we're going. Uh, we have started a series called Relation Slips, talking about uh, God's design, God's plan for relationships. And we have, uh, we're in part four of that. Uh, we have seen three parts uh, so far. Uh, we started off with the point, uh, that is the point of singleness. And we examined uh, God's point and purpose for any time of singleness in our lives uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And so we saw the point of singleness. After that, we found our way to Song of Solomon chapter 1, and we looked at the pick, that is how to choose the right kind of mate. And we saw uh, a wonderful example in Song of Solomon chapter 1. Last Sunday, if you were with us, we saw the purposes, and we moved from singleness into marriage, in a sense, and we saw uh, God's purposes for marriage. And there were three, three of them uh, from Genesis 1 and 2. And we got up to Genesis 2, 2 verse 18, and that's where we're going to pick up this morning as we continue on with the plan. And so this morning, if you're taking notes, uh, the plan, God's blueprint for marriage, is where we're going to be this morning. So I trust you're all there. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 18, is where we will be living for this morning. And uh, let's pray, and we'll dive right in. Father, thanks so much for uh, a glorious day. Uh, It's uh, an awesome privilege to be your redeemed people and to come together for fellowship, uh, to come together to love one another, encourage and build up one another. It's a wonderful thing for us to come uh, into this building as your church and to worship you, uh, to give you our praises, to give you of of our monies, because everything that we have, our very life, our very breath, the very um, voice that we have, all, everything we have in our bank account, it's yours. And we want to give it to you freely and joyfully. And so thank you that we have done that as a church for the roof and on an ongoing basis. It's a wonderful opportunity and we're so grateful that we can worship you with all that we are as a living sacrifice. 
We pray now for your guidance as we turn into your word. Um, We thank you that you have preserved this story for us as you brought together the first husband and the first wife and you uh, officiated the first marriage. What a wonderful text that you've preserved for us. And then there's this wonderful clause that for this reason, for this reason, a man should leave his mother and father and uh, cleave to his wife and the two should become one flesh. You have given us a wonderful plan a wonderful blueprint for marriage. We are so very grateful for it. And I pray, Father, for those of us who are single, uh, if we anticipate marriage or look forward to that, I pray that you would help us to learn to get out the map, to get out the blueprints, to learn how it is that you have designed marriage to work so that we can prepare for our future marriages. For those of us who are married, I pray that you would help us to get out those directions again and wipe off the dust a little bit from them and take a fresh look at your design and your plan for marriage, it's good. And we're so very grateful for it. And so help us, we pray. Holy Spirit, come, teach us, guide us, rebuke us, instruct us. Help me to speak words that are true and meaningful and accurate and powerful. And may it be to the praise of the Son and the Father by the Holy Spirit and God's people said, amen. So I want to ask you a question to begin our sermon this morning. Have you ever tried to assemble something, something that you bought that the box said assembly required, you know, those kind of boxes? The kind of boxes that I hate getting, I almost want to buy everything pre-made. In fact, I think it's a good idea that when you buy anything, large or small, it should come together pre-assembled. For people like me, um, Phil, I, I, you know what? I probably have two tools in my toolbox, okay? So if you have three, I've got two. Um, I'm not handy at all, and I, I don't like assembly required. But most things in life uh, require a little bit of, uh, of assembly, a little bit of work. And so um, have you ever tried to put, men maybe specifically, have you ever tried to put something together that said assembly required, look at the blueprint, look at the directions, and you didn't? Now, okay, thank you for being, Stan, thank you. You're honest. I've done it too. I think most men have done it. Ladies, although this may be a little different, have you ever tried out like a new recipe but not actually followed the recipe? I know we've done that before as well. You're trying something new. You say, well, they say you need a pinch of this and half a uh, whatever of that. And, and you try to, you, 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 know, you kind of change it up. You don't follow the plan. Well, I don't know about you, but when I do that, it doesn't work very well. Now, sometimes it does, and you get lucky. For instance, uh, my neighbor across the street, his name is John, and uh, he has a daughter who is Asher's age, and they play together quite often. And I went over to his house maybe about a month ago, and he had just put together this massive playset. It's gargantuan compared to most, really nice. It has two swings and a, a slide that's, get this, it's not just straight, it curls. It's awesome, and my son loves it. It's a, it's a fantastic piece. And I said, John, you know, how long did it take you to, to put this together? And he said, well, I did it all by myself. And I thought, how in the world did you do that? All by yourself. And he said, and the instruction said it takes two people, and I think this is a rough estimate from my memory. He said, I think the instruction said it would take two people 18 hours to do it. Does that sound about right, Shell? Two people, 15, 18 hours to do it. And I thought, and you did it by yourself? And he said, yeah, and I don't even think it took me that long. <laughs> and I'm like, really, how did you do it? And he said, well, I got all of the pieces, and I just lined them up. And I said, well, how many pieces came in this set? And he said, about 400. And I thought, 400 <laughs> pieces? And you did it all by yourself? And then I said, well, did you, did you use the directions, you know? And he said, just a little. <laughs> 
And I thought, that is not how it would work if I were doing it. It would take 10 people, 30 hours to do it if I were doing it. You know, normally, when we do things like that, whether recipes or we're putting something together that requires assembly, usually, normally, it's a really good idea to use the plan. It's a good idea to use the blueprint. It's a good idea to make sure that at the end, you get the result that you intend. You know, marriage is kind of like that. Oftentimes, it comes in a box, and we get married, or maybe we've been married for a while, and the box of marriage says, assembly required, and then it points you to the instructions. It points you to the blueprint as to how to make your marriage work out right. And oftentimes, we, like my friend, although he did it well, we pridefully kind of say, I think I can do this on my own. I don't think I need to read the recipe. I don't think I need the instructions or God's blueprint. And oftentimes, it fails when we try to do it together because the end result, well, that recipe, it may not just taste as it's supposed to. Or that swing set, it may not exactly function the way it's intended. And so the question this morning is, what is God's plan? What are his blueprints For this thing, this institution that God has instituted himself called marriage. Well, I think we find it in Genesis chapter 2. So turn with me this morning to Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 24. We see God's plan. We see his blueprint for marriage. How is it supposed to work? And I'll boil it down to three steps. I th- you know, so it's a short thing. You open the box of marriage, and you look at it, and you're like, oh, this, the instructions must be overwhelming. Not really. There th- there's, a, there's a basic plan, and it just involves three steps, okay? So even somebody like myself, or maybe Phil, if you only have three tools, only three steps. So it's okay. Three Three steps, God's plan, his blueprint for marriage. Number one, we receive our spouse. Number two, we leave our parents. And number three, we cleave to one another. So that's our bullet points. Receive, leave, and cleave. And they even rhyme, which pastors love. So step number one, let's take a look at that. It's found in verses 18 through 24, the first step in God's blueprint, his instruction manual for basic marriage is step number one, we must receive our spouse. Specifically, We must receive our spouse as God's gift to us. So let's just pick up where we left off uh, in verse 18. Chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. This is where we left off, if you recall, in God's purposes for marriage. We saw last week that one of the three purposes for marriage is is companionship. And we saw that from verse 18. The Lord said, this is not good. After seven times, he says, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then he looks at Adam and he says, bro, that's not good for you to be alone, okay? And so he says, I'm going to do something about it to fix it. And he says, I'm going to make a helper one who will come alongside of you in this great task of multiplying and filling the earth and being my ruling representatives. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a helper suitable for you. Okay, so verse 18, we have this declaration. God says, on the one hand, it's not good for him to be alone. On the other hand, God is going to do something about it. And so when I read this text through, I think, okay, right now, he's going to create Eve and Boom! Problem is solved, right? It's going to be good. He's not going to be alone. And he's just going to immediately make Eve. But that's not at all what happens. In fact, he, he does something quite odd. Let's just read it in verses 19 and 20. Notice what he does. Now, the Lord God made Eve and brought him 
No, that's not what it says, is it? No, verse 19. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, this was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. And so God says, it's not good, I'm going to fix it. And then the very next thing he does is he kind of takes Adam on this petting zoo show. He takes him to the zoo. And he's like, you've got authority, name these animals. And Adam, surely, if he, if he heard what God said, that he was going to provide this and that it was not good for him to be alone, must have been scratching his head for a while. What in the world is this about? What, why did he do that? Well, I think he did that because he was preparing Adam. He was preparing Adam to receive Eve as the perfect helper, as the perfect gift, as the perfect suitor for him, if you will. He was preparing him. He was building the suspense, if you were, for the time when he would not not bring an animal to Adam to name, but he would bring a woman, a companion for him to name. So he's preparing him. And then in verses 21 through 23, we see that exactly happening. We see that God creates Eve. He brings her to Adam. and He receives her as a perfect and wonderful gift from above. Let's read that, verses 21 through 23. So the Lord God calls the man to fall into a deep sleep And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And this is him receiving her in verse 23. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. So the first thing that we see is that God brings to mind this need and he says, these animals don't do it. I'm going to prepare you to joyfully receive this wonderful gift of a spouse when I bring it to you. And Adam sings maybe the first song here or the first poem and he sings a song of jubilation and joy and he wonderfully, uh, joyfully receives this spouse. At this point, I want to take a break and listen to uh, what a few other pastors and theologians have to say. I think they bring uh, this out in the family life material really well about the scenario and receiving your spouse. And so, Doug, if we're ready back there, let's go ahead and play clip number one about receiving your spouse. There's a pattern in creation. All right, six days. Let there be, then there was, it was good. Let there be, then there was, it was good. Let there be, then there was, it was good. We get used to that pattern. That pattern happens for six days. First time God says something is not good is when he looks at Adam. He says it's not good for man to be alone. Genesis 2.18 says, The Lord God said it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And I just get this picture of God looking at Adam saying, that old boy ain't going to make it. Because you know God's a southerner. And then... Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see 
what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Now, that indicates a, uh, a, a, an authority function that Adam had with regard to the animal kingdom um, over which God had given him stewardship. You know, here you have, check it out, Adam's all by himself. He's a dude. He's male. Nothing looks like him. So God gives him this assignment of naming all these animals in the garden. And they come two by two. And the Bible says, whatever name Adam gave it, that was its name. Again, that exercise of dominion. God has given his image bearer the right to classify these animals. So he, he names them. He just rattles off this taxonomy. He's just naming these animals, classifying these animals. And in our own mind, we can see these animals coming up two by two. You can see the hippopotamus and then the, the elephant and then the cheetah. There's a he-rabbit and a she-rabbit. There's a he-bear and a she-bear. There's, there's Mrs. Hippo and Mr. Hippo. You're going to be a, a doe and, and uh, you're going to be a buck. And you're going to be a, a hen and you're going to be a rooster. And then you, uh, you see the hyena as he comes. You see the smaller, the dog and the cat as they come. Maybe you're going to be a zebra and you're going to be a zebrette. I don't know. Now, I don't know if Adam was as slow as the average male is about some of these things, but I can imagine maybe after about 25 minutes or so, he started thinking, now, wait a minute. You know, there's some significant differences between these two people. The plumbing is exactly the same thing. Adam may have been dense, but after you've named a few million animals and seen them come in pairs, he had to get the point. There was not found a helper fit for man, so then... Um, God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and took a rib from his side. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. He sees a figure or something that doesn't look like a chimp. It doesn't look like, he's trying to figure, well, it doesn't exactly look like me, but what I'm saying, I really love, I really like. When Adam says this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, I think he's recognizing that she was taken out of him, but there's, I think, instinctively a, a longing for a reunion of that, uh, that that has been separated. And I think that's the early indication of uh, sexual desire. He doesn't name her Eve. He says she shall be called Isha because she came out of Ish. In other words, he is distinguishing her from the rest of the animals. He says, this is now. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And, and that whole phrase there, that whole statement is Adam saying, this is different than the other stuff that I've named. She's one of me. He's ecstatic over this gift that God has finally given him. She hasn't done anything. It's just her very presence. And, I was, and seeing her, he knows that there's something special about it. He knows she is a gift from God. And so he's excited simply to receive the gift. So we've seen the first step is to receive your spouse as God's gift. I want to suggest three ways that we can do that. Uh, for married couples and those of you who anticipate being married, number one, receive your spouse just by acknowledging that they are a gift uh, from God to you. And so have you, have you done that? Do you do that often to your spouse? Uh, or wives, do you pull him aside and pause and say, Honey, I'm so very grateful that you're a hard worker and that you provide for us and that you love our kids and that you're a godly man. You are God's gift to me. Have you done that 
lately? Or guys, have you done the same? Honey, I'm so very grateful that you cook wonderful meals, and I'm very grateful that you're an awesome mother. Thank you so much for being a godly and great wife. And so we can receive our spouses just by simply acknowledging verbally to them that they are a gift of God. Secondly, we can receive our spouse by receiving their differences. We should receive our spouse's differences. Uh, Dr. Tom Constable says this. He says, receiving our spouse means embracing the God-given differences he's built into each of you. And so, husband and wife, do you embrace your differences, your God-given differences, or do you scoff at them? Are they something that allows you to grow in patience and love and understanding with one another, or do those differences cause friction in your marriage? For instance, one of you is shy and not so social, and the other one is very social. One of you would rather stay at home in the evenings, and the other would rather have everyone come to your house in the evenings. That can often cause friction. Maybe one of you is a saver, and the other one is a spender, like myself. And so my wife wants to save, and I want to spend it. And uh, that can cause friction in a marriage. You know, there are all sorts of differences that are not sin issues. They're just differences. Differences in our personality, differences in our preferences, differences in our backgrounds and our experiences. And so, well, we grew up doing Christmas like this, and you grew up doing Christmas like that, and that can create a whole lot of tension. I think receiving our spouse means receiving our spouse in their entirety, even the parts that rub us wrong, even the parts that we are utterly different than them. Third, I think we should receive our spouse in spite of their flaws, receiving them in spite of their flaws. Now, God brought Eve to Adam, and she was, at that point, sinless, a perfect spouse. Uh, Ever since Adam and Eve, there was no perfect marriage, and all of us come into marriage as damaged goods and as uh, inherently sinful people, yet redeemed and being changed by the work of Jesus Christ through the Spirit. And so part of receiving our spouse, then, is just receiving them for who they are, even when they sin against us, even when they hurt us, even when they wrong us, even when they annoy us, even when they bother us. And so I want to ask you, how are you doing about receiving your spouse even when they hurt you, even when they disappoint you, even when they don't quite meet your expectations? I want to show another quick clip on this. I think it's a wonderful testimony. Doug, are we ready for it back there? Uh, it's, It's a story of a couple who chose to receive each other in spite of their flaws and in spite of the sin and the terrible tragedy that they endured. So Doug, if we're ready, let's show that. we hadn't come back from vacation the day early. How could I accept myself? I wish I had not gone to work that morning. We wake up every day hoping it was an awful dream and that it wasn't true. And you wake up the next day hoping it was an awful dream and it wasn't true for months and months and months. I was just having a great time just playing with the two kids on the bed. We were rolling around in the covers, and they were giggling, and I was like, oh, Jonathan, you smell so badly, and I've got to change your diaper. I just think I'll give you guys a bath. I got Carrie, and I put her in, and Jonathan had been sitting up well for a month, and he was seven months old at the time, and um, so I just played with him in the bathtub, and then I could hear the dogs barking outside, so I went 
um, to the front door and I called the dogs and they wouldn't come. In my heart, I knew that, I just knew I needed to get right back there. I got an interruption in a meeting at work where a floor supervisor came into my meeting room and said, your wife's called, your son's drowned, you're supposed to go home right away. When you hear something like that, you can't possibly really believe that what you've heard is true. When I got to the driveway, there's the ambulance sitting out front and lights running, and I walk into the front room, and our seven-month-old son, Jonathan's on the floor with the paramedics working on him and trying to revive him and Pam praying over in the corner with a friend. And you're having that almost out-of-body experience where you're looking at something you think can't really possibly be true. When we got to the hospital, my best friend was the physician. And I remember him walking into the room and saying to us that uh, we lost him, uh, Jonathan's gone, and taking me over to the side and saying, you know, Bill, when there's a death of a child, as a result of the responsibility of one of the spouses, there's probably an 85% chance for a divorce. It was really hard to be 26 and have something happen like this that you don't expect to happen. construct what happened, you want to um, wrench your fists at how could you do this. I had to come to grips with what was that going to be in our marriage. I had to come to grips with, am I going to take that anger and just focus on that anger and focus on the mistake, or am I going to talk about what we have to do going forward as, as a family and as a couple? As we drove home and as I prayed, we got our two-year-old we sat on a piano bench together, weeping and crying. I held up the Bible and I said, you know, this book is either true or it isn't. If it's true, we know God loves us and he has a wonderful plan for our life. And um, he's in control. God will not protect us from what he will perfect us through. That's where Christ makes a difference. Not only in forgiveness and receiving each other because, you know what? I was wrong to leave the bathtub. But we don't live perfect lives. I'm not a perfect person. I think of it as a choice that you can forgive each other and continue to work towards letting God have the freedom and the Holy Spirit to have freedom to work in your life, to make you into the person that he wants you to be. And he uses good things, and he uses really, really hard things, too. It's a touching story of the fact that we can receive our spouses, even their flaws and their sins. So we've seen the first step. first step in this blueprint is we receive our spouse as God's gift. What's the second step? Let's read verse 24, and we'll find out that the second step is not only we must receive them, but we must leave. We must leave our mom and dad. Verse 24. Now this is why, that is why a man leaves his father and mother. In verse 24, uh, Moses kind of takes a step back from this, gospel, from this narrative, this Genesis narrative creation. It's just been a storyline, and now he steps back and he says, something significant has happened here. This is the first marriage, and so let me 
tell you about what it, it means, about its significance. And so he steps back and he comments and he says, this is why. Because what just happened, Adam and Eve came together and they came together as one. That's why a man should leave. A man should leave. And so the second step, quite simply, is we receive our spouse, but then we have to leave someone. We have to leave our parents. This speaks, I think, primarily of just a shift in allegiance. It speaks of a shift in, uh, in not only allegiance, but also a shift from being dependent upon your parents financially and in a lot of different ways to being independent from your parents. In a sense, you kind of have to cut the umbilical cord of dependence and allegiance from your parents, and you re Attach essentially that umbilical cord with your wife, as odd as that sounds. Now, when I was, uh, when we first had uh, Asher, um, Shelly said, Are you going to cut the umbilical cord? And I thought, I don't know, maybe. I was a little hesitant about it. I don't like blood, and so just getting through the birth was a little traumatic. For me, if not her, <laughs> for her, of course, and I was a little traumatized. And so it came time, and, and the doctor's like, Do you want, you know, here it is. Do you want to cut? And I'm like, you do it. <laughs> you, no, I, I don't want to do that. And they're like, oh, it's not going to hurt the baby. It's not going to hurt mom. I'm like, well, it'll hurt me. I'm not going to do it. Okay? <laughs> and so the second one came around, and I thought, maybe I'll do better. You know, maybe I can actually do this. And so same thing, less traumatic, because you know what's going to happen. And uh, so there it is. They hold it out, and I have the scissors in my hand. And I can't bring myself to do it. You know, I, I just say, no, I'm not going to do it. And so both of the times, they cut the umbilical cords. But, you know, the funny thing is, is that the mother gives, the, gives uh, the, the baby life, much like the parent gives children life. But at some point, you've got to cut the cord. You know, at some point, the baby can't just go on. You know, you don't see moms carrying the baby with the umbilical cord still attached. You can't do that. And you can't do that in marriage either. You have to cut the cord of allegiance and dependence upon your parents. Sometimes, sometimes we leave, we get them, we get married and we leave the house, but we don't really cut the cord. You can live on your own as a married couple and still have not left your mom or your dad. Uh, sometimes maybe there's a domineering mom. She can't let go of her little boy. She wants to influence him. She wants to speak and guide his life like he used to and he fights against that uh, and yet he often bows to her wishes in lieu of his wife's wishes. They haven't cut the cord. Sometimes there's a dad who thinks that he can still boss around a little girl who he taught and instructed and gave wise counsel to, and, uh, and, and the, the wife just feels this tug because, because dad is still telling her what to do, and yet she now is wed to this man, and she's supposed to, to, to follow and be submissive to this man, and, and the husband is resentful to the father-in-law because he's pushy. You see, sometimes we can leave the house, but we haven't cut the cord. And so how about you, married folks? Have you cut the cord? Have you cut the cord of dependence? Have you cut the cord of allegiance? Dan Allender in his book, Intimate Allies, says this, The failure to shift loyalty from parents to spouse is a central issue in almost all marital conflict. Wow, is that true? Is that really a central issue in almost all marital conflict? If that's the case, we really need to investigate, have we left 
our mom and our dad. That means leaving financially. And so when you first get married, you need to move out of the house, Lord willing, if you can, and you need to be as much as possible financially dependent upon them. And I'm not saying you can't receive help. I'm not saying they can't pay for your tuition and school for a semester or two. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that generally speaking, you need to strive to be financially independent, especially if you're relying upon mom and dad to get you out of bad financial decisions that you've made. We need to leave financially, but we need to leave emotionally as well. So this means, ladies, that uh, when you're upset and you're troubled, you don't run to your mom first or your dad first. You run to your husband first. And that means, dads, if you have an issue and you need to consult with your wife about what to do, you don't go and ask your dad primarily and take his advice first. You consult with your spouse. You need to leave emotionally, and your primary allegiance needs to be to your spouse. Um, there was some, t- some, t- some tension and issue when Shelly and I first got married. Uh, we can't think of any specifics or any specific reason, but I talked with my wife yesterday or a few days ago, and she said, you know, the first year or two of marriage, I really had this fear that if there was something between you had to choose between you doing it your mom and dad's way and, and what I wanted, that you would choose what they wanted. And that broke my heart because that's not what I want. Now, I don't think it's like that anymore, um, but that's, that's an issue. And I said, well, why is that, honey? And she said, I, I can't think of any specific reason, but there's this underlying fear that you were still going to have your primary allegiance to your mom and dad. And that is very real and oftentimes still to this day in your marriage might cause a problem. So we need to receive, we need to leave. And then third, the tail end of verse 24 we need to cleave. We need to cleave. Uh, your translation, of, you know, NIV says to be united to. I think cleave is probably a King James term. Uh, hold fast is the ESV. Uh, we, need to, we need to cleave. So let's read the tail end of verse 24. We'll just read it all. That is why a man leaves his mother, there's our word, and mother, uh, father and mother, and is united, NIV, and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Uh, Dennis Rainey, in one of his books, says, the degree to which you leave is the degree to which you can cleave, right? So if you're not leaving your mom and dad, you're not cleaving to your spouse, okay? The word essentially means to cling to or to stick to, right? It means to cling to someone or to, 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 to stick to someone. It, it speaks of a permanent and inseparable bond. And so some of the images in the Bible uh, used of this word describes two metals that are melted and kind of joined in, into one, right? So you get that image. There's two metals and they're melted and they're fused together and they're one inseparably. Another biblical image is the, is the idea of your skin sticking to your bones. When you get a bad scrape and you have some skin hanging off, That's not how it's meant to be, right? That's not good. They're supposed to be stuck. They're supposed to go together. And so it really speaks to this idea of a commitment to stick and to be one for a lifetime. You know, we do this when we have weddings. And when you stood before whatever pastor or priest it was that married you, and you stood up here, when I stand up here and I marry a couple and it's him and it's her, part of the vows is that we vow to one another to cleave to do this, to be continually committed, not just on that day. You're not just saying, I cleave to you on my wedding day, but all the other days, we'll see. You know, it's I will cleave to you and I will continue to cleave to you for the rest of life. That's what we do when we say our vows. 
In family life has put together this clever little, um, this thing that I want to read to you. And, and they, they compare and contrast a traditional wedding vow. And, and, they, and they share this wedding vow and what it, what it means in your ears on the day that you get married. And then what it really means throughout a lifetime. So I just want to read this to you. I think it's helpful. A, a traditional wedding vow begins with, With God as my witness, what it means on the wedding day. Lord, help us. <laughs> and if you feel that, Lord, help me. <laughs> what it really means, this is a solemn vow before God and man. A traditional wedding vow says, I take you. What it means that day, I can't believe somebody would marry me. What it really means, I receive you unconditionally as God's perfect gift for me. To be my wife, to be my husband, what it means to us, finally somebody can understand me. What it really means, I am no longer alone, I'm in this for good. To have and to hold, what we hear. Hopefully to hold includes more than just holding. What it really means to be close physically, emotionally, and spiritually. From this day forward, wow, this is seriously happening. What it really means, the wedding is a sprint at the start of what is a marathon. For better or for worse, things only get better, right? What it really means, there will be good times and hard times and things uh, might really hurt and we will go through them together. In sickness and in health, who gets sick these days? Only old people, right? What it really means, I will clean up after you when you're too sick to do it. Finally, to love and to cherish. Love is such an amazing feeling. No one could ever stop feeling this way. We all felt that, right? What it really means, I will think of your needs as much as I think of my own. And that's what we do when we take a wedding vow, is we vow to cleave. So I want to ask you something, married folks, and I want to ask you uh, something, those of you who might be married in the future. What will hold your marriage together? Or what does hold your marriage together? What's the glue of it? Is it family expectations? Is it the shame of a possible divorce? Is it simple tax advantages? Is it financial security that the marriage can provide? Maybe it's a a good environment for the kids. I hear that all the time, where we're staying together for the kids. Well, that's good. (laughs) But if that's what's sticking your marriage together, when the kids leave, guess what? You're separating. Feeling of affection or maybe feeling of love? Well, what happens when you don't like them so much? What happens when you don't love them? What happens when you fall out of love just like you fell into love? Or, Is it a covenant commitment to cleave to one another for life? So we've seen three steps. God's blueprint, right? Receive, we leave, and we cleave. And what's the result? What is the result when we follow God's plan? What happens? Well, verse 24 tells us at the very end, and they become, what church? One flesh. They become one flesh. The two become one. Now certainly, uh, according to 1 Corinthians 6, 16, this, this does refer to sexual unity. Certainly sexual unity is a picture of something much deeper, although it certainly describes that here. I think it's a picture of the unity of two people, of two people becoming one, body, soul, spirit, mind, purpose, and intentions. And in doing so, we mirror the beauty of our glorious God, who is Father and Son and Holy Spirit. They are are three people, but they are one God with one intention and one will, if you will. And in doing so, we become one. Again, Clifford and Joyce Penner, Christian psychologist, 
I think, they, I think they nail it. It means far more than a mere physical meeting of the bodies. But the total person, intellect, emotions, body, spirit, and will, becomes involved in the process of giving ourselves to each other. And so we see the math. It's simple. Receive, leave, cleave, and there's one flesh. That's it. Those are the three steps, and that's the result. And so what we've seen this morning as we close is that the box of marriage comes with uh, assembly required, stamped on it. And for the wise man, for the wise woman, both single and married, it would be smart, it would behoove us to open the box and not just to dive right in and start trying to assemble this thing called marriage. No, what the wise person does is they open the box, they recognize that it takes assembly and a plan and a blueprint, and you look at the blueprint and you study it, and then you try your best by God's grace to live it out. You receive your spouse as God's gift, you leave your mom and dad, you cleave to your spouse, and you become one flesh. And so let me ask you those of you who are married, What are you doing with those blueprints? What are you doing with those instructions? Did you pull them out for a while and then set them aside? Are they gathering dust? Or is it something that you continually refresh yourself with? Those of you who are single, you might be getting married someday. What are you going to do with the the box? Are you going to tear it open and just kind of dive in? Or are you going to take the instructions, listen to them, follow the steps, and become one flesh? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you've preserved this first marriage for us. It's a wonderful and beautiful thing. You've preserved it uh, throughout all eternity, and you've showed us what it means to be married. You've shown us what it is to receive our spouse as God's gift. You've shown us what it is uh, to leave our mom and dad and to cleave together with our spouse and to become one. Father, I pray for my own marriage and for many of the marriages here that we would not throw away the instructions, that we would not ignore them, but we would read them and meditate and continually evaluate our lives so that we would bring honor and glory to you, reflecting who you are. That is the purpose, is to reflect who you are to a world. As we've heard before, um, our marriage is a gospel testimony that is continually giving out uh, signs and signals and is continually speaking. The question is, Is it speaking good or is it speaking ill about you? And I pray that our marriages, both present and future, that they would be good gospel testimonies that would speak well of who you are. We ask it in the name of your son, Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, and God's people said, amen, amen.